0: Okay, i um, thrilled with the turnout today, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is Show Do Tell, the reading series where I like to think we get to know readers a little, just a little. As much as they might know themselves, which for me isn't much. Um, so my name is Matt Waters, I'm uh, from Queens, I'm the host. Um, and thanks again, we got three really, really terrific writers today. Uh, Ada Zillian, Matthew Thornburn, Brandon Lorber. And it's going to be a terrific reading. I'm going to start us out with um, uh, i like to re- do a reading uh, just just to kick things off. Something tangential, season, month, mood. Um, this is called September 1, uh, 1939, uh, by W.H. Auden. Woohoo! Actually um, ended up not liking this after it was published, which is uh, pretty. Um, Yes, yes, pretty well known, uh, I think because he thought it was self-aggrandizing, but who doesn't need to be aggrandized once in a while? I know I do. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, I'll uh, we'll read it. I sit in one of the dyes on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade, waves of anger and fear Circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, Obsessing our private lives, the unmentionable odor of death, Offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense, From Luther until now, that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz, what huge image made, A psychopathic god, I and the public know, What all school children learn, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled, of the knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do, the elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave. Analyzed all in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit forming pain, mismanagement and grief, we must suffer them all again. Into this neutral air, where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man. Each language bores its vain competitive excuse, but who can live for long in a euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. Faces along the bar claim to their average day, the lights must never go out, the music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this sport assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. The windiest militant trash, important person shout, is not so crude as our wish. What mad Nijinsky wrote about Digolef is true of the normal heart. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have. Not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow, I will be true to the wife, I'll concentrate more on my work, and helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the dead? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Woo! Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, get dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, be leaguered by the same negation and despair. Show an affirming flame." Thank you very much. That. Uh, imagine writing that and hating it. I don't know, man. I can't relate to some people. But, God you know, bless them. All right, uh, so let's get this party started. Uh, Matthew Thorburn is the author of seven collections of poems, including The Grace of Distance, published by LSU Press in 2019. I believe he has copies here, it's tremendous. Uh, and the book length poem, Dear Almost, also published by LSU Press in 2016. Honored with the Lescombe Prize for Collected Poetry. His work has also been recognized with a witter Benner Fellowship from the Library of Congress, as well as fellowships from the Bronx and New Jersey Arts Councils and the Swanee Writers Conference. He lives with his wife and son in New Jersey. Thank you for being here, and uh, come on.
1: Thank you very much. Thank y'all for coming here today. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Um, This is very exciting. This is the first time I'm reading from this new book. It's called The Grace of Distance. It just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, And it's a collection of poems uh, about distances. About the distances between uh, people, between people and family, between uh, cultures and uh, countries, ways of thinking, and about how we try to close those distances or sometimes find that we can't so it's sort of the, the themes that run through this book. Um, I'm going to read a, about six poems from it for you. Um, and a number of the poems take place in or have to do with uh, China, where my wife's family is from. Um, including this first poem, which is the first poem in the book, is uh, set down. It's called "The Call." The Call. Once a boy slipped down a well and far on way. He surfaced deep in Mongolia, whispering through his fever of the vast, star-clotted sky he swam beneath. Once I called out into that dark glitter, then cursed, then bargained, then begged, until someone called back. And um, this second poem also takes place in China. It's in a place called Hanzo, um, right by a very beautiful lake called West Lake, or Shihu, um, which is a very poetic place and has been written about a lot in, in, in classical Chinese poetry, which this poem sort of relates to. Uh, and this is dedicated to my mother in law, who passed um, away about two years ago and was a great uh, reader and um, student of Chinese poetry. It's called The Blue Bowl of Sky over Hanso. Go ahead, Gong Gong, the boy says. Once the green light goes on and the camera's rolling, pulling in this video, I'll watch again later when I find it online. And his grandfather says, an old man feels guilty that bracken and spring mountain bamboo are so sweet. Or so the subtitle will say. His words are Chinese. They're the words of the Song Dynasty poet. Su Po. West Lake laps the rocks. I take a bite of Dong Po Ro, the stewed pork named for him, because he invented it, the story goes, once when he was bored, then hungry, then forgot the bubbling pot when a friend stopped by to play checkers. And hours and hours later, the smoky aroma, the squares of pork belly, dark, and delicate on the tongue. Strips of skin and meat and yellowy fat, not bad. I'm looking for one perfect phrase to show you this white-haired couple, this boy's gong-gong and, I can't remember how you say grandmother in Chinese, his wife who stand next to Sue's statue which stands next to the lake. He's finished reciting poetry for now and they look content. They must be on vacation, I think, though no smiles, not touching, hands at their sides for this business of photo taking. But also a phrase, that's all I'm after, or even just a word, two words, that catches the quiet hopefulness of each such careful documenting, which says, we were here. This is what life was like once, not bad. Now the boy squids through his camera and takes a tentative step back, then another, clicks the shutter once and once more to be sure he gets it all in. The liquid smooth sweep of rock, darkened on one side by so many hands that suggests the poet's robe. Sue's face tipped back to the blue bowl of sky over Hansel. that blue turning gray and now turning black. His long face that looks a little more surprised each time another camera flashes. Thank you. I never know if you're supposed to clap for every poem in the end, if it's always, but thank you. Um, um, about two years ago, my family and I moved to New Jersey to a very small town. And we moved there from the Bronx, where we lived for about 12 years, which was a very big change. Um, and I still work in the city. Um, but, uh, I wanted to make sure to read uh, a New York poem, since I'm here, not on business, which is sort of unusual for me, and not at a, a children's thing either, but at a portrait reading. Um, this poem originally started with uh, two friends of mine. Lindsay Leslie and Jean Dubreuil were doing an anthology Uh, poems about perfumes. And what they did was they got all these little sample vials of perfumes and sent them out to poets to write a poem about or respond to or whatever way you would. And I'm not really a perfume person, but I like it a lot when I have an assignment or or something to respond to or sort of like a little challenge. So I said I would do this, and they sent me a perfume fortuitously enough called Manhattan. which I immediately thought did not smell like Manhattan. At least I put at the parts that I opted in. Parts of it might smell like that. But anyway, that was my response. So this is, this is uh, after that fragrance, and it's called This is What the City Smells Like. Uh, and has a question mark at the end. No. Give me the steam of pork dumplings, 10,000 made by hand each day on Moscow. The cool marble of Grand Central, where a quarter million people catch a train, shoe polish and subway ad blue, and a pale dusting from the rising sun of pizza dough spinning overhead. Mix for me the horsey funk of hansom cabs, yellow mustard and a hot caniche, on again, off again, rain, a dash of asphalt and taxi exhaust, the sawdust and cement dust of buildings going up or coming down. Give me a gust of hot bakery air, the sweet and sour tang of a rush hour train, newsprint and armpits, damp wool, baby powder, a hint of hope or disappointment depending on the hour. For me, it's the dark tickle of luncheonette coffee, its briny pickles plucked from a barrel, and the gingery waft of a midtown sushi den. Give me 59th Street fountain spray, faint and cool on the breeze. From that hundred-year-old fountain, homeless men sneeze and dip their toes in. And even a whiff of the glossy black bags piled high along 35th, trash shining and baking in the morning sun. But Corsican and Martel, gold saffron and sandalwood, notes of suede, Take a hike up 5th Avenue and spurt some other guy with that. Anoint my neck and cheeks with espresso dust and the grease of this pig floating past, roasted red and glistening, shouldered high on a board by two skinny cooks bickering in Cantonese and pushing through the crowd at Canal Street. Let us sniff mozzaripas, disco fries, decades of spilled beer behind the piano at the Vanguard and the ghost of cigarette smoke. In all the bars, you can no longer smoke in. This city smells like milk crates full of boxed paperbacks for sale on a sidewalk, like the fish in her gut-mapped apron, fish scales glittering on her wrists. It carries the zing of pickled herring. It smells like glazed donuts and nail polish, yellow curry, a stack of scratch-off tickets, and a dirty penny. Like bodega roses, kimchi, and fried rice, and the faraway ocean, you can sometimes smell deep in downtown, if just for a moment, you stand perfectly still. I'm going to read just, just a couple more. This is a shorter poem. Um, one of the distances that this book deals with is um, in a lot of different ways, sort of spiritual distances, belief and doubt and faith, um, in a sort of Christian sense and an Eastern sense and, and in all kinds of ways. And so there are a couple of poems about Annunciations. Um, the Annunciation is the story in the Bible when the Bible, uh, when the angel letter uh, comes to Mary and tells her that she's pregnant and that her baby is Jesus. Um, this is called An Annunciation. Uh, there's a couple of poems to sort of think about the enunciation in different ways. An Annunciation. Wouldn't it be easier for the old woman who gets up each day to make bread before dawn who no longer dreams of anything and the traveling salesman lost in thought perched like a sparrow on the motel bed if an angel came down and said this is your life now here is what you must do the snow like a heavy curtain falls on our last on our first acts upstairs a teenager sings to herself by the frost starred window. hear her walking back and forth bed to dresser dresser to bed would it be wrong to imagine these words are her song you might suppose she's packing for a journey, but she left long ago. And um, I mentioned earlier about like the challenges and little assignments and things. These last two poems are each um, poems written entirely in one sentence, which just pleased me enormously. But um, this one's short. The second one's a, this is a little bit longer. Um, this is called the Other Side. In the old ink and brush style of painting, the brush can't leave the paper until you're done. So it's all one long line that turns and turns and loops back, taking its time. And sometimes, standing here outside the door, as snow filters across the big black sky, and I can hear you on the other side, I can't remember if I've only just arrived, or it's time for me to go. And um, this last poem um, is a, a story about a couple of musicians in the studio at the end of a session. Um, it's sort of based on a story about Duke Ellington, but I was thinking and listening when I wrote it to um, two trumpeters, Doc when and Nicholas Clayton, who do just the most beautiful version of a song called Out of Nowhere, which this poem is about. This is called How Every Song Ends. I guess the tune was out of nowhere, and so it must have been a lark, a laugh, since the session was already over, the bass in its case the piano lid lower. Everyone headed out the door for a pre-dawn drink or a bad girl's arms, and don't forget to kill the lights. But then Joe strums his guitar, picks out those opening notes, and the trumpets. One older, fainter, one bright and brusque step up to tell us what this song's all about, that timeless back and forth, what she said and he said, nudging each other, disagreeing and agreeing about who was right, who was wrong, who did or didn't do what, noodling through all the should-haves and meant-tos that make up our lives. The laundry list of missed calls, closed doors, the letter unsent. That time he didn't look back, but wishes he did. And don't you know it's late, too late? That's what the trumpets call out. And yet, how happy the end of this night caught on tape. How lucky the engineer who flipped the switch Turned the lights back up so he could see the trumpet's bells, the guitar's dull glow, Doc and Bud and Joe, how this whirl of notes circles the mic, and how we, who weren't even alive for these six and a half minutes, not long, long enough, long ago, hold our breath as here they come now, all the way around. To play the chorus once more and remind us how every song ends by going back to where it began until there's only silence as someone stops the and turns out the light. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Um, first is that no one's looking for a kid. It's a little kid pop this head in. I want to make sure no one's looking. Okay. All right. Lion and the Witch and the Warden situation going on. But, uh, all right. Yeah. So, uh, Matthew, um, thank you for uh, your reading. It, it was great. Your book is uh, a very enjoyable read. Um, and as you mentioned, um, faith is, plays, plays a role. And um, the challenges and um, often... The, uh, I thought the book extrapolates seemingly minor incidents or things from long ago, remembering extrapolates into, into large quest- questions. And um, these matters invoke the great unknown, and uh, invoking a higher power is not something you shy away from in the collection. So uh, my question, without further ado, uh, if you discuss your relationship to God as a poet, and uh, when you are crafting these poems, uh, does that feel like a dialogue to you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How much time left? Um yeah Yeah. I guess it was, um,
1: it was sort of interesting for me because this, sort of the, the core of this book, or, or a big part of it, is poems that um, I wrote of those as I was looking on previous books, and they didn't really fit into those books. And I liked them, so I sort of set them aside. And at a certain point, I looked at this sort of folder of poems, and I sort of realized that they hadn't fit in those books because they were all sort of a bio, um ideas of, of faith and doubt and, and that sort of thing. So I think I was sort of writing that conversation that you were about without fully realizing it. That's sort of what I did realize. I wrote some more poems along the same lines. Um, uh, and I guess, I guess for me it's sort of a, sort of a writing, writing out of a sort of a little bit skeptical but kind of wanting to, yeah. maybe wanting to believe more than believing
2: yeah,
0: that. that's, sort of, that's a very interesting answer. because um, I well, uh, without um, from the book I would do that without um, so that's great. I really appreciate you uh, being being so open. Um, and thank you. Uh, let's hear it from Matthew. Uh, yeah, I believe he has books here. Uh Matthew Forber. Um, thanks for coming out and uh, sharing your lovely work. Uh, good stuff. Uh, okay. Um Ida Zolian, which I I got the the first one. Uh, Improvement. That's that's the main thing I'm looking for. Um, Is a New York writer and English teacher. Uh, Her debut novel, The Legacy of Lost Things, uh, was released in March 2015 uh, by Bleeding Heart Publications and was the recipient of the 2014 Leung totally uh, Literary Award. Uh, she has been featured on NPR, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, uh, Kirkus Reviews, among other radio and print platforms. Most recent reason- recently, her short story collection These Hills Were Meant for You was shortlisted for the 2018 Katherine Ann Porter Award. She is currently completing her third novel, and I believe she's reading an excerpt uh, from that from that work, and that uh, it's tremendous. So come on.
3: a gorgeous afternoon. Thank you guys for coming here and hanging out on a beautiful day. And um, thank you for having me. Oh, so the novel that I'm writing is about a family, because I like family stories. And this, so it's a mother, a father, um, and three sisters. And this chapter is about the youngest sister, Sabina. And Sabina, being the youngest, is also very removed from her two sisters because she is very privileged and her two older sisters were anything but privileged. So this chapter really is about her, um, and hopefully you'll be able to figure out where she is. Sabina pried the goggles off her face and adjusted her thumb. There were deep impressions where the goggles had been tightened several times since sunrise. Her bare eyes, now exposed to the elements of the desert, were whiter than the rest of her face and made her look like a frightened owl. She wiped off a thin layer of dust from the lenses and placed them firmly over her face. The dry, cracked earth beneath her feet felt reassuring in the chaos that loomed miles ahead of her. From where she stood, a small cropping of human figures arose silently as if a ritual awakening. Some walked, others weaved through the pathless surface on bicycles and unicycles, while the more valiant rode in vehicles painted and tricked out with an ostentatious ferocity. A silver, silver metal rhinoceros glinted quietly. A red truck donned with bullhorns, pulled up in the distance, topped with a makeshift oil well. A motorcycle lurched into speed, costumed as a menacing black rat. The drivers, the passengers, the itinerants and cyclists circulated in an understood harmony that Sabina could not understand at all. And their smiles, all of them, conveyed the same absurd contentment. It was just another day in the desert. It had been the most arduous six days of her life. She had fallen in love with the idea, but not the thing itself. Now the idea nor the thing brought much desire. Sabina only wanted and had wanted for the last five days was to be home, or at the very least not in the desert. It had been her ex-boyfriend Ryan's idea, and after he abruptly moved out with an explanation so vague that Sabina still couldn't decide whether Ryan was sensitive enough to spare her the truth or insensitive enough to not give her a reason for breaking up with her, Sabina had already bought the ticket, and gone with the conviction that she was going, not because of Ryan, but in spite of him. Her hope in accidentally running into him evaporated as quickly as the stream of her piss at high noon. This was not the week-long festival as Sabina had imagined it would be. It was a transplanted community where Sabina, try as she might, would never run into Ryan. As a matter of fact, there was no familiar face except for the two friends with whom she had arrived. She hadn't seen them since. To avoid the heat, Sabina had been waking up early and retiring to her camp before noon, which seemed almost nearly empty of people, where she slept fitfully on a damp cotton sheet as the sun blazed away. Her camp, named Paria, was a nondescript Brooklyn-based camp juxtaposed in the epicenter of Party Naked Tiki Bar, Afterglow, Cats, and Then There's Only Love. The names Sabina had assumed spoke for themselves. On her first evening there, deciding not to stray very far, she had visited these camps and realized quickly that they were not as aptly named as she had thought. Only the men were shirtless at Party Naked Tiki Bar. Afterglow passed out glow sticks and glow in the dark body paint, cats to much much to her relief, spent the majority of their time in cat costumes, licking and grooming each other, and then theirs only love was a free-for-all orgy of any sexual orientation that did not mandate the use of condoms. Regardless of how little or how much time passed, Sabina would remember this trip as a long and bizarre string of days that faded into one another. Days where dust crept into every crevice of her body, her mouth and limbs hot and dry, her hair a matted nest, her insides parched no matter how much water she drank. She was unmoved by the massive art installations, the drum circle towers, the pervasive nudity and drinking and drugs and themed dance parties and the orchestrated carnival of crazy. On the last evening when the small world would gather to watch the 100 foot wooden figure of a man blaze into flames, Sabina would be on the other side of the desert spending her last evening with a stranger and she would remind herself that in the midst of nearly 70,000 human beings who at the very least had sought and found some kind of purpose in their time in the desert, she was as vacuous and aimless as the day she had arrived. Hey, two girls walked towards the tent, who at first Sabina didn't recognize. One had a shaved head and was wearing a pair of purple goggles, and the other one had one side of her head shaved, and her eyes and her face were painted with sparkly pink stars. "'Where have you been?' Purple Goggles asked. "'Yeah,' said Pink Stars. "'We haven't seen you since we set up camp.'" Now, as this this piece continues, purple goggles and pink stars are her friends, uh, Caitlin and Ariel. "'We're going to make a wish,' Caitlin said. Ariel stood next to her, beaming with delight. Sabina caught herself before saying something profoundly unwitting, realizing it was a camp Caitlin was talking about. It's supposed to be this really chill place. Wish-making, apparently, is like a whole thing. Like they teach you how to make a wish, said Caitlin. Come on. (laughs) Sabina walked along with them towards the middle of the playa, and now they were surrounded by everything Sabina had observed from a careful distance music come from all directions as, as if someone flipping through the radio too quickly. Chaos, Sabina sensed, was abounding. They weave through an ocean of canopy tents. So just to propel the story further, they pass by this guy who's handing out animal crackers claiming that it has some kind of spiritual cleansing property, and one of her friends takes it and chews it, and of course nothing happens. And then they end up at this uh, make-a-wish situation, this camp, so I want to just move us forward to that point. Sorry, just finding my face. There were three women and a man standing next to the trellis tied in rags. All of them were wearing sunglasses and smiling, what Sabrina would refer to as a burning man smile, upon looking back at this moment in her life. Would you like wishing ribbons when a woman asked? She motioned to a pile of cut-out cloth laid out in a small wicker basket. We also have paper and tape if you prefer that. Yes, please, Caitlin said, taking a strip of cloth. Ariel took one. How many wishes can we make, Caitlin asked. We get that question a lot, said the man. We like to limit it to two wishes so we can leave room for others, especially today. It's the last night. Caitlin sat on the dusty ground, poising herself for the next step. So what do we do first? Just think of a wish you have, any wish, and write it down. We'll attach it to the wishing wall, he said. Should I repeat it in my head for a few times before writing it down, asked Ariel? You can, the man replied. Everyone has their own process. It's really up to you. Sabina stood over there awkwardly while Ariel lowered herself to the ground with a slip of claw and pressed a pen to her temple in deep thought. And how about you, one of the other women asked, would you like to make a wish? I have lots of wishes, Sabina said. It was the first time since arriving that someone had directly spoken to her. She took a piece of paper and pen and sat a few feet away from her friends. I wish, she wrote. And at this point, we get a really, really long flashback that I'm not going to, I don't have the time to read. But I do want to reach the moment of the flashback that is significant in today's in my reading to you today. The flashback you'll be missing is her overhearing a conversation between her two older sisters and their resentment towards her. And eventually, um, she moves uh, she moves forward in thought uh, about her older sister Margot. So this focus is going to be about her older sister and. Hopefully, it ties everything in together. It reminded Sabina of the bitter arguments between Margot and her mother when she was a young child. As if a buoy held underwater for too long, the saddest moment of her life resurfaced, a montage of memories snipped and glued together that would be forever encapsulated in a microfilm footage of her life. Margot had come home from work early that afternoon. At the time, she was completing her master's and working full-time at a publishing house in the city. Usually, she would come home late, and no one would see her until the following morning as she was getting ready for work. They were all sitting in the living room, her father, her mother, Lucine, and Sabina finishing their homework. Margot sat down in the dining room chair and watched them quietly. I want to tell you something important, she said. Their mother, sitting on the couch and flipping through the channels, did not break her gaze from the television. What is it? And I should tell you, this is a very traditional Armenian family, and Margot is the eldest of this family. Sabina had taken for granted the disjointed dynamic between her mother and sister. Her mother, detached and apathetic. Margot, eager yet brave. There was never a time it hadn't been this way. There was never a time Sabina could recall a harmony between her mother and Margot. Sabina understood now how depressing it was. I found an apartment I'm gonna be moving out in a few months, said Margo. She gripped the sides of the dining room chairs as if expected to fall off the seat. Silence. Her sister Lucine absorbed herself in a textbook. Her father took a sip of his coffee and cleared his throat. It's not far. It's Astoria. It's a one-bedroom and about ten-minute drive away, she said. Her mother muted the television and kept her eyes fixed on the screen. Mom, can you say anything? I'm hoping it's not as big a deal as I thought it would be. I'm almost 24. Finally, her mother looked at Lucina and hurled the remote control across the room. It crashed against the wall, scattering batteries under the console. If you leave this house, I'll never speak to you again said her mother. Mom, Sabina dared not look up, did dare not move, did not dare move. She could already sense Margot's face stricken with shock, the tears in her throat. If you leave this house, I'll never speak to you again, she repeated. This is a family. You are part of this family, and if you leave, it's only 10 minutes away, Margot said again. How long should I live here? I stayed for college because you didn't want me to go anywhere. I'm getting my master's. I'm working a full-time job. You want me to live here until I get married? Yes, her mother hissed, yes. I want you to live here with your family. What if I don't get married? What if I don't want to? Or what if I do but don't find the right person for a long time? I don't care what you want. You're ruining the family by doing this. You're fracturing this, her mother screamed, pointing violently to each of them who like statues sat in obeisance. I'm gonna say this one last time. If you leave here, I don't ever want to see you again, never. How could you say this, Margo yelled, now standing up. How could you leave? Look at the upset you're causing. Oh, because you want what you want, and the rest of us have to deal with it. I just came here to tell you I wanted to move out, Margo argued. I'm not causing. Yes, you are. Their mother thundered back. Yes, you are. get the hell out of my face. I don't want to look at you. Margot would have moved out sooner, but the apartment she wanted was all she could afford, and it wouldn't be ready to move into for three months. For that time, they all washed in silence as their mother's brutal rage unraveled mercilessly. One morning, she randomly threw a cup of hot coffee across the kitchen where Margot was standing. Mother cooked only enough dinner for the four of them, removed Margot's wet clothes from the washer on laundry days, threw away her belongings if they were lying around the apartment, and worst of all, did not utter one word to Margot since their awful argument. In essence, their mother carried on as if Margot did not exist at all. None of them, not even their father, spoke up. It was a Saturday afternoon the day Margot moved out. Their mother, father, and Lucien had left the house and Sabina was on the couch in the parlor. Margot was in her bedroom numbering and labeling boxes in anticipation of the moving truck that would be arriving soon. Sabina could hear the squeak of the marker against the cardboard and the screech of packing tape, and then softly the melody of the piano. When she looked over, she saw her sister sitting on the piano bench running her fingers over the keys. She began playing a song that Sabina must have heard her entire life, a song Margot had written when she was a teenager. Sabina sat in the stillness of the apartment, the warmth of the morning light in the parlor, listening to her sister play the piano one last time. She knew the words but didn't dare sing them under her breath. She realized the irony of the words and the prophecy in them. The song was about their mother and Margot had written it 10 years ago when she was only 14. Sabina would not allow herself to cry cry, and felt shallow in the wake of her sisters leaving. She could only imagine Margot's pain. Hey. Sabina looked up at her sister and tried to smile, the tears bubbling to the surface. She couldn't find her voice and felt as if the pain in her throat would strangle her. Margot came and sat next to her. Just us, huh? She asked. She put her arm around Sabina and drew her near her. She pressed her lips against the top of Sabina's head. I'm sorry, she said. I know you're upset. Sabina only managed to nod. Do you think I'm leaving because I don't love you, Margot asked? Sabina shook her head emphatically. She felt Margot's relief as she exhaled. Good. Because I love you. I know, the words croaked out. I'm just worried, Sabina began. She took a breath. I'm worried that you don't feel loved, she said, that you don't think we love you. I know you do, Margot said, her voice now shaking. I know. Had she been able to capture that moment in her life, Sabina would look upon it as a photograph of she and her sister sitting in the empty parlor, hugging each other, bathed in the bright morning light. She she would feel as if her love was not enough to make up for anything. After all, what true solace could a 10-year-old offer? Sabina would never know that in the many years Margot had lived with them, up to that very moment, she had never truly felt loved. Ready? Caitlin and Ariel were standing over Sabina. Now dulled and drained from over- overthinking, she nodded her head. Did you make a wish? Ariel asked. We tied ours on the wishing wall. They're about to take it for the offering. It's almost sunset. Sabina scraped the words together on the piece of paper and handed it over to the woman standing by the wishing wall. Let's go. Come on, said Caitlin. She and Ariel began walking along with the wave of people moving steadily behind them. Sabina paused. If she ran, she could easily catch up with them. Instead, she watched the fully shaved head and the half-shaved one disappear into the throng until she was alone again. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Thank you. for
3: out. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Um, so, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I got a Ph.D. in New Age YouTube videos when I was in college. And, um, so I really, really enjoy. It. I did not, I did not go to Burning man. Me neither. Uh, I didn't make it. I never made it.
3: Either. Just like my
0: dad with Woodstock, G- got stuck in traffic. Um, so, <laughs> um, I just want to know, um, First, um, what made you want to write about Burning Man uh, through the eyes of uh, your, your protagonist? What, what kind of a, attracted you to kind of Oh, Burning that? Man. Yeah.
3: Um, the character Sabina is so aimless and she's always looking for different ways of, I don't know, shaking herself up. I think everything came to her way too easily. And so she keeps going to these different things um, to sort of change her but what she obviously doesn't realize is no matter where you go, you're gonna take it with you. Nothing can change you no matter where you go, it's, it's who you are. Yeah. So that's why Burning Man. And after that, um, at one point she considers an ayahuasca ceremony, and I'm not really sure if I'm gonna put her through all that, but I may. Yeah. I
0: mean, that's, yeah, no, that's, that's a natural progression. And uh, just as a, as a follow-up to that, um, she ends up re- recollecting these, you know, Familial wounds, really, um, at burning man, and uh, I'm wondering, you know, what's it like having uh, such heavy emotionality and also humor like, occupying the same space, and uh, just, just curious like, have, have you, have you like tried that before, or is it kind of just occurring naturally?
3: The 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 book that was published, The Legacy of Lost Things, I feel like was very dark and just did not have that levity. Right. Um, and it was a very short and very intense book, so I considered that for this one because I think this one is going to be much longer and it should be pleasant and so we need levity, but it do- did come naturally to me that, it, to add these nuances. Yeah. Just kind of hitting more, more
0: yeah. notes and in what you can do, yeah. which, which happens, and uh, it's pretty amazing uh, when we kind of circle back there and it's a completely different feeling. Uh, uh, and that's life, uh, that's memory and things like that. So, thank you. Thank you. no absolutely. Um we'll take a little, uh, five minute break, uh, before, uh, Brandon Lorber, uh, cl- closes this out. And, uh, yeah, get right up to drink, talk, whatever you want to do, uh, we'll reconvene. For two decades in the making, his first full-length book just came out. It's called, If This Is Paradise, Why Are We Still Driving?, and it's published by the Sub Press Collective. He's also written several chapbooks, most recently, Unfixed Elegy, and Other Poems, that was published by Butterland. He's appeared in the American Poetry Review, Fence, McSweeney's, Brooklyn Rail, and elsewhere. Take it away, Brent. Thank you so much, Michael.
4: Sorry everybody for being a few minutes late. I just, it's part of my whole stance of not really knowing at any time what I'm doing, but I know that I can't do it without you. So thanks for coming. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna start by reading a few pieces from my relatively new book. If this is paradise, why are we still driving? And then I'm gonna switch over to some more even more recent work. And then I'm going to switch back. It's going to be a sort of time-traveling experience. We're going to start with the new leaf was older than the first one, but I'm pretty sure this other leaf will totally work. After the fact is a great place to start, regretting that your nothings are the sweetest All else are snowplows I plan on returning at the end of the summer. I joy through before it's cold enough for anyone to notice they're gone. Who feels the absence of what they never knew they had? In the control tower, they nearly miss their flights, and the misgivings they have over the delivered clearances is the distance from the tip of their nose to the blip on the screen, as if to say, I'm probably not pregnant, but it's pretty dark in there. Dark like a lens cap selfie, or any resolution that pretends this morning is any more certain than the last. I was an unscheduled departure, or a New Year's promise someone made on a sagaponic beach among the dunes that insist it won't always be winter, right? Avoiding pain as a lifestyle is itself painful, but for the process to work, we can't know if it is, or even that there is one. Humor is the opposite of neurosis, the way being in pain is the opposite of getting hurt. That was a good piece for ushering in the new season. This is lucky break of day. Which will be good for ushering in the next season after this one. The Nor'easter shut down the subways. So whatever prevented me from going to your party was canceled, including your party, and any means to get there. Everything we say hides what we mean, but also creates a little space to discover it. Like, clouds get the blame, but it's the sun that blots out the stars, even on a perfect day. Even perfection can't be a thing, and until the day is tallied and no longer happening, like a scenic road and the overlooks with shrines to whoever didn't quite make the turn. This is the shore in the woods. I have a core less solid than music or an argument filtered through thin walls, a set of beliefs that lives by the shore I visit a couple of times a year where I light a fire whose light you can read about the fire by. The jury met in secret in the woods and though the contest winners were chosen, the jurors mostly judged each other. But what I'm trying to say is the light in my heart is your heart. This next piece, which I'm going to dedicate it to Liam and his future snacks. I'm not exactly sure what this piece is that I'm about to read, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's very inappropriate that I've dedicated it to you, Liam. But here we goes. alright? We can explain okay. it to the cops later. Called, um, it actually starts with, there's, there's a uh, there's a line that Ted Berrigan stole in the sonnets from Frank O'Hara. Of because i badly loved, the the line was, I think I was thinking when I was ahead I'd be somewhere like Perry Street, erudite, dazzling, slim, and badly loved. So, because I'm badly loved for the imminent. And if this is not really working, I might just skip to the next page and seamlessly pretend it's <laughs> seamless the same poem. <laughs> The ghost is not a Pasternak, or even a ghost, any more than you are, though you would, you will be of whatever becomes of you. We want the epic, but the epic wants time we don't have. We can build all the renaissance fairs in the world, but the real Medici's always lie in wait in the shitty part of Lyndhurst across I-80 from the Joust. It's the opposite of what Georgia O'Keeffe said about flowers and friendship says about the ease with which one can save horses from a stable that's not on fire or a fire from rain in New Mexico. The hope you'll cure me of my hang-ups in a song on your golden lute is itself my hang-up, the misplaced exterior of a building in bed where the endorphins should be, or if not endorphins, then at least Pasternak or O'Keeffe with revolutionary and desert-hued scarves tied to the headboard. I'm on my tour of my top 10 emergency rooms to wake up in with someone yelling clear, with only a couple left. I've yet to learn the new secret idiom of not being a total dick, that is, of behavior beyond charming stasis. It's okay that we're all ghosts, but do we have to be ghosts of something? I want so badly to not be of myself, but I'm so bad at everyone else. So that's uh, that's from my new book I I is. You can either pick up or I can take them back home and they can keep nice company with the other copies that I have back there. Um, I'm going to read a few pieces from this clipped together manuscript called Other Poems Dedicated to People in the Room Unexpectedly. That's the working title. <laughs> it, it'll change when I leave this room. Um, let's see what time it is. This is called, now that it's 3.35, I know some things.
3: <laughs>
4: and it's uh, dedicated to Ida, yeah. Ida.
3: Yeah.
4: I'm sorry, I'm Branded, by the way. Not yeah. Brandon, but it's cool, oh, it's, I, it's all right. Brian, Brandon, <laughs> Bernard, it's all, it's really close enough. Um, Now that it's 3.36, I know even more things. I am extremely lucky, but very little of it is good, except in the educational sense of having learned my lesson today, or maybe someone else's, someone whose panic attacks are like the instrumental bridge that gets us out the door and into the next scene. The next scene being the sort of bubble-sorted re-alphabetizing of our tenure-track aspirations to wake up after last night's damage, or the longer-term bone loss over the many such wash-and-rinse repetitions. The present always saunters along out of what we mistook for the present a minute ago, where so many impostors call the past and future home, but the real one, under a little cap of steam that warns you not to touch it for a while, is a decision tree chopped down and burned to fuel the even newer analytical engine whose elaborate fixity can't keep up either. Despite our expertise, Everything fans out further like a scalp massager with extra tiny wires at the end of each wire and even more tinier wires at the end of those. Or the confrontational presence on the sidewalk of a signed first edition of the book that changed your life with a sign on it that says, ''Take me'' and also says, ''Probably no bedbugs.''
2: <laughs>
4: Alright, this, uh, this is for um, Matthew that one <laughs> this thing i sometimes get arrive home to discover your keys are in your pants but these pants aren't yours or even pants despite how you're wearing them we can always tell who it is receiving the win or not the wind, but the rough diagnosis harder to pull off its divination between the frisson of an unbeatable hand and tingling extremities of an ungloved winter we know it's underway but not what it is, nor the rules by which the clutching at us is playing. Mortality always has the key, but still announces itself on the intercom. Only I can hear, I'm coming up, but then it doesn't, which explains both how I'm able to relate this, and also the 20 expressions on my face as I do. The device I use to wipe the grin off is akin to miniature community building by the light of the solar flare, which is normal, or underwater chess, where you hold your breath for the duration of the game, or cross-country sleep scheme, or competitive eczema, or simply pushing the barbed arrow through till it comes out the other side, and you can just get on with your day. This is family feudalism. You're welcome. We were friends, I think, though mostly the kind where they tell you, no, the line forms over there when you get to the front, except I'd still call if I needed you to remove a bullet or some lower drama equivalent, and once almost did, but the problem got resolved abruptly by revealing itself to have been less a problem than a lingering fealty to some long-gone system like the Shogunate or early Internet. A feudal amb- ambiguity, or capitalist, or Sumerian, where everything is hard to say, and those that are easy, like nice to see you, have all the certainty of election day morning, or of this upcoming phrase, until some toxicity steps out of itself into a moment as a shortcut of to being a work of art, as though a poem or a friendship could be an exchange of ideas instead of the weird spaceship or abandoned soccer arena that they are, where the ideas spontaneously generate whether anyone's around to notice. Was that feudal,
2: feudal or feudal. futile?
4: Feudal, like the era, like, like pre capitalists like the mud farmers. Thank you, thank you, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Do you need one, or no? No? Okay. What's your name? Right. Yes. Cat. Cat. This is a brief lecture on fairies for cats. I <laughs> have
0: no idea how appropriate that is.
4: I don't know either. <laughs> it's the first one I'm reading it. I've <laughs> never seen this before. Um, I've made a few quick edits. Now that it's dedicated to you, I've changed a few things around. Perfect. Being beloved for your capacity for love it is a start, as in you gave me a start jumping out of me from the edge of the meadow. It's difficult to receive the energy we spent so much of on so much of to make, antenna of ourselves to sense the answer to beyond being alive, being itself a sort of answer. If only the kind that immediately assures us our question is important and will be gotten to in the order it was received, a sigh from God, that that's all the inkling we get from that direction. We can circle back later, through the air or through solid things that the fairies might call home or call home from, to the edges of a meadow, or your skin, which is the curb you step off and cross the street into the world, or just the scent of your skin, or maybe they're underground spirits of a form on standby to call a specificity into existence, or maybe tiny engines of mischief and wuthering desire. Or maybe they're the old gods who forgot about us shortly after we forgot them, despite the cool wings and nudging archi- architecture that their cathedral is a silk pajama wink towards. How exciting to be something you're not going out dressed like that lecture a mortal once gave as an antenna wrapped in the goods. But you have to signal but you have to signal whether you're down with the infinite approaches to the three kinds of fairies or three interpretations of the one kind or just the one interpretation of the infinite trinities, as though the acting out you do is out of abandon. Let's see, I think I've got like a couple a couple more. The 21st century was so five minutes ago. I like them better over on this side. Into every rain a little purple must fall to earth that on second thought maybe we don't want to inherit with all its truths behind the music of false equivalencies on par with where to park the old car bequeathed to us without paperwork or functioning brakes. Every stick of gum you ever chewed still lives somewhere and increasingly is the only thing holding anything together. That and nostalgia for songs about looking forward to the delirious joy of tomorrow is one way of putting it, and so is being in love with your life, fully aware of the human trafficking and child soldiers who make it possible. two more. Does that sound like a pretty good, pretty good number? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I made us reservations for after we're done here. An answer that's both a shrug and a ship's demand that the lighthouse get out of the way, the strong, silent type of nautical disaster, into the minimal isms where less is mortal. Maybe the horizon should come to us for a change, now that it's always election day of some sort. The kissing clientele who are both the cause of and caused by the nation behaving like the loose, broken part of hell nobody takes the blame for knocking off the table where your friends were about to head from into some decade of reckoning, where they're like, hey, let's break up over the very problem that had once been our one thing in common. So those are some new calls. Now, we'll wrap it up with another new poem from this new book. Um, this is a Coquette Au vin. Sort of a fancy poem. It's got a French title. When I say secrets, I mean I made a river of wine or of chicken and wine sauce until the night after night of it was too deep to cross. Internal metrics always there to make something else worse. When you need an alleyway to elude pursuers in suits, that's all you need. That or fiction of past or future love. Even time has incapacities as Brooklyn Bridge led from roveling to bling roves. I'm like the one-leaf clover of empathy. I don't not have it, I just don't get it with everyone awful, especially me and Alfred Hitchcock, who said, only say the opposite of what you need." The least reliable part of the airplane is my ability to fly it. Together, we could curate the premier museum of statues knocked over by people backing up to look at other statues with a bucket for all the broken dicks and noses. Listen, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can't do it without you. (laughs) Dan? <laughs>
0: Thanks, Mike. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm being now in the main um So uh, it's actually interesting. Um, I, I met um, Bill, <laughs> I, met, I met Brandon at another, um, uh, at another reading, and uh, the, the thing that's really struck me both times is I, I read his most recent collection, and I've, I've heard you read twice, and it's so different hearing you read versus reading it. It has, it has that really interesting quality because um, in, in reading it on the page, it, it has this, as I was mentioning before, a very enveloping quality for me um, with what you do with the words um, as language but also as symbols or as kind of messing with uh, linearity. I feel like a lot of times your your uh, your poems or the last line it's simply like going to sleep like we do uh, as people and not really answering uh, anything which is uh, and and when you're reading when you're reading you know it, it it's really so my question is I say this I apologize this is frustratingly vague um, I I feel like your poems uh, feel like a place that you might be entering exiting. Uh, like you're reporting from a space between two of your lines, especially your very separated words. Um, am I full of it? Do you just sit down and bang out some work for the day, or do you do you uh, genuinely, genuinely feel like part of your task and what you're doing is like getting into this, this space, this state of mind, uh, where your work lives? Uh, yeah. Um. It's not vague, but it's it's very open
4: ended. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's there's like the William Blake line, first thought, best thought in art, and and uh, but then then the key is to then re-enter the work and and actually make it like worthwhile. Yeah, like in the initial ecstasy of writing, everything's great. But um, but yeah, there are these these sort of white spaces in between each phrase, these sort of caesuras, where it's they're almost like the carburetor, where the actual the actual engine gets the gets its energy from. Um, where the explosions happen. Um, and they can be almost read backwards and forwards, like each phrase gets informed by the one that follows and changed retroactively. So that you read a phrase, it has a certain set of, set of meanings and associations around it, and you go to the next phrase, and you realize that first phrase has a completely different set of meanings and associations, and then it continues to cascade forward like that. Um, so there is this Resistance to linearity and all of its
0: assumed um, answers to questions. Yeah. And is that um, kind of, do you feel rebellious in doing that in your relationship to to language? Is it a. No, I think it's just an acceptance of like the psychosis of (laughs) living in the world. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you, everybody, uh, for being here. This is another uh, terrific reading. I, I can't do it with, uh, without you. Uh, uh, to steal a line, the feeling is good. Uh, yeah, and don't forget, uh, Matthew and uh, Brendan have their work here uh, that, that you can purchase, and it's it's well worth it. Um, this is a show and tell reading series. We meet uh, the first Saturday of each month here. Uh, we'll be meeting again uh, in October, I believe that's might be October 7th. I never had the exact date, no it's probably not, it's probably like October 5th or something like that. Uh, hold on a second, take out my trusty cell phone, October 5th. So our next one will be October 5th, 2.30pm. Thanks again to today's readers. thank you uh, wonderful audience for being here, hope you enjoyed yourself, thanks for making the time on a, on a beautiful Saturday uh, spending some time here. Uh, I'm Matt Waters. Uh, Have a great day. (laughs) Bye-bye.